Section 13. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics, Chapter 7. The Nature of Light, Part 2. The effect of high temperature is seen in the greater brightness of the flames of sulfur, phosphorus, and indeed all substances when burned in pure oxygen, as compared with the result of their combustion in air. Direct evidence of the effect of high temperature is also afforded by the combustion of phosphorus in chlorine, for while at ordinary temperatures only a feeble light is produced by this combustion, strongly heated phosphorus vapor burns in hot chlorine with a dazzling white light. A comparison of the relative densities of gases and vapors shows that the brightest flames in general are those which contain the densest vapors. Hydrogen burning in chlorine produces a vapor more than twice as heavy as that resulting from its combustion in oxygen, and the light produced in the former case is stronger than in the latter. Carbon and sulfur burning in oxygen produce vapors of still greater density, and their combustion gives a still brighter light. Phosphorus, also which has a very dense vapor and yields in burning a product of great vapor density, burns in oxygen with a brilliancy almost blinding. The luminosity of a flame is increased by compressing around it the surrounding gaseous atmosphere, and it is diminished by rarefying it. Thus, mixtures of hydrogen and carbonic oxide with oxygen emit but little light when they are burnt or exploded in free air, but exhibit intense luminosity when exploded in closed vessels, so as to prevent expansion of the gases at the moment of combustion. The density, then, of the gases formed in combustion and the temperature at which combustion takes place were thus held by some physicists, notably E. Franklin, to be the sole determining factors in the brilliancy of a flame. As for the particles of solid matter, it is known that while in some instances they may increase the luminosity, in other cases they produce the opposite effect, rendering the flame less bright. All these known facts were thought during the latter half of the 19th century completely to have disposed of the solid particle idea in the brightness of flames. As a matter of fact, it is evident that the dense vapor theory, advocated by E. Franklin and others, while it adds much interesting information to what already is known of the nature of flame, does not in the least disprove the fact that a flame is bright when it contains particles of solid glowing carbon, and it is not luminous when it does not. Such brilliant and thorough investigators as Hoyman, Birch, Smithels, Techa, and especially Vivian B. Louvis established the fact toward the end of the century that in the burning of ordinary illuminating gas, that remarkable illuminant acetylene is first formed and subsequently decomposed. Louvis' careful experimentation showed that in the dark part of the flame there occurs a transformation of gases and that at the point where luminosity just begins, 70 to 80% of the compounds formed is acetylene, and this in a gas flame in which less than 1% of acetylene is originally present. Immediately above this point, 
the increasing heat of the flame breaks up the acetylene gas into its two constituents, carbon and hydrogen. The hydrogen burns in contact with the oxygen of the air. The carbon is heated to incandesce by the combined influence of the burning hydrogen and the so-called latent heat of the chemical separation, hence the flame. The real nature of flame is even today very commonly misapprehended. A popular idea exists that wood burns. Wood, strictly speaking, does not any more burn in air than it floats in water. The flames seen burning at the surface of a wood fire are due to the combustion of volatized solid material, and their luminosity is generally conceded today to be due, as above shown, to the presence of finely divided particles of glowing carbon. Dr. Percy has accurately denned flame thus. Ordinary flame is gas or vapor of which the surface, in contact with atmospheric air, is burning with the emission of light. This definition leaves little to be desired, for it very properly directs attention to the gas or vapor necessary to a flame, as well as to the fact that the flame itself is hollow. Dr. Robert Montgomery Bird has summed up the essential teachings of modern study of flame briefly as follows. When the hydrocarbon gas leaves the jet at which it is burned, those portions which come in contact with the air are consumed and form a wall of flame which surrounds the issuing gases. The unburnt gas in its passage through the lower heated area undergoes a number of chemical changes, brought about by the heat radiated from the flame walls. The principal change being the conversion of hydrocarbons into acetylene, hydrogen, and methane. The temperature of the flame rapidly increases with the distance from the jet and reaches a point at which it is high enough to decompose acetylene into carbon and hydrogen with a rapidity almost that of an explosion. The latent heat so suddenly set free is localized by the proximity of carbon particles, which by absorbing it become incandescent and emit the larger part of the light given out by the flame although the heat of combustion causes them to glow somewhat until they come into contact with oxygen and are consumed. This external heating gives rise to little of the light. There have been opponents to his theory of the cause of luminosity, as there are, fortunately, of all theories, but the evidence is so strong and covers so many points and so many investigators have confirmed one part or another of the work that it has been generally accepted as a true statement of the facts with which it deals. Visible light, as Frauenhofer long since pointed out, reaches the eye in vibrations numbering from 4,000 to 7,000 billion per second. No other vibrations are useful to us for seeing purposes, for no others have any effect upon the retina of the eye. The analysis of the apparently white light of the sun and the combining of the spectral colors so formed to reproduce white light dates back to the time of Newton. Frauenhofer, however, devised a means of studying the solar spectrum without a prism. On plates of glass he ruled very fine parallel lines very close together, making the first grating. The beautiful iridescence of such substances as mother-of-pearl has been shown by the simple microscope to be due to a multitude of fine lines in the surface, the refracting edges of which disperse the prismatic colors like any true prism. 
Such a surface was the grating of Frauenhofer, and the great advantage of this instrument over the prism lay in the fact that the lower part of the spectrum where the red rays occur was very much spread out, whereas the simple prism dispersed the red end of the spectrum so little that examination of its characteristics was rendered difficult. Frauenhofer also experimented successfully with gratings made of very fine wire, 0.04 to 0.6 millimeters in thickness, or 0.002 to 0.03 inches in thickness. By the aid of similar gratings, John William Draper of New York not only confirmed the measurements of the light waves which Frauenhofer had made, but determined the temperature, 525 degrees centigrade, at which all solid and liquid substances become iridescent and glow with a red heat. He proved also that below this red heat invisible rays are emitted whose vibration lengths may be measured. Lewis Morris Rutherford, whose magnificent work in radioactivity has rendered him justly famous, produced other and better gratings made of thin sheets of metal, and Henry A. Rowland of John Hopkins University within very recent years ruled gratings so fine that they contained more than 100,000 lines to the inch from 50 to 100 in the width of a fine human hair. Gratings have never been surpassed. With the aid of these wonderfully fine gratings, Rowland has prepared large photographic maps of the solar spectrum and prepared a system of standard wavelengths now universally adopted. The wavelength of every line in the solar spectrum has been measured through this means, and there are few of the common terrestrial elements which have not now been identified in the atmosphere of the sun. The discovery of the invisible rays below the red of the solar spectrum dates back to Sir William Herschel, who in 1800 determined their existence by means of a thermometer. He noticed that the thermometer rose regularly when it was moved from the violet toward the red end of the spectrum, and it occurred to him to try the region beyond the extremes of the visible colors. To his delight, he found a regular series of radiations below the red. It is sometimes of great use in natural philosophy, the great astronomer observed, to doubt of things that are commonly taken for granted, especially as the means of resolving any doubt, when once it is entertained, are often within our reach. This discovery, says Thomas Young in his lectures of 1807, must be allowed to be one of the greatest that has been made since the days of Newton. Yet the majority of physicists failed for more than half a century to see the importance of this discovery of Herschel. It was only a few years after the discovery by Herschel of infrared radiation from the sun that Johann Wilhelm Ritter and Wollaston proved the existence of dark chemical rays in the ultraviolet region of the spectrum. Macedonio Maloney, the inventor, with Leopoldi Nobili of the thermopile, was the first to arrive at a thorough realization of the identity of radiant heat and light. Light, said he, is merely a series of calorific indications sensible to the organs of sight or vice versa. The radiations of obscure heat are veritable invisible radiations of light. He argued that where there is light of any sort, there must be some heat and moonlight ought to show some heat effects. He experimented at first unsuccessfully in this direction, but finally, with a lens more than three feet in diameter, succeeded in getting feeble indications of heat from the rays of the moon. 
The thermopile which he used was a simple instrument based on the well-known principle that a cold wire is in general a better conductor of electricity than a warm wire. Hence, any simple galvanometer or other current measuring apparatus showed by a deflection of the needle when any part of the electric conductor was heated. The measurements of radiant heat made by Maloney in solids and liquids were paralleled by the investigations of Tyndall upon the diathermancy of gases. Tyndall possessed extraordinary powers of popularizing difficult scientific subjects. His first great lecture, delivered in 1853 in England, took his audience by storm. He came to America and delivered in 1872 and 1873 several lectures on light which were enthusiastically received. His famous Belfast address brought upon the brilliant Irishman the charge of infidelity, for he was as independent in thought, as outspoken in expression, and held ever to the principle that truth has nothing to fear from its enemies. Tyndall pointed out, as had Maloney before him, an error of wide prevalence concerning the influence of color and absorption. Benjamin Franklin records of himself that having placed patches of different colored cloth of the same weight upon snow, and allowed the sun to shine upon them, he found that they absorbed the solar rays to different degrees and sank to different depths in the snow. He concluded from this experiment that dark colors were the best absorbers and light colors the worst. For the visible rays of the sun, this conclusion is in general true, but the solar rays consist of radiations running far outside the visible spectrum, about seven times the length of the solar spectrum having been detected in the infrared radiations, and perhaps twice as much as is visible in the invisible ultraviolet. The visible spectrum of white light has been shown by recent measurements to be only about one-tenth of the actual measurable solar spectrum. In the invisible region of the spectrum, effects are often observed, which are the exact opposite of those seen in the prismatic spectrum. Tyndall proved this in a clever manner. He coated the bulb of a delicate mercury thermometer with the white powder alum, and the bulb of a second thermometer with powdered iodine exposing both bulbs at the same distance to the radiations from an ordinary gas jet, he found the alum-coated thermometer rose nearly twice as high as the other. Alum was a better absorber than iodine. The radiation, he remarked, from the clothes which cover the human body is not at all to the extent sometimes supposed dependent upon their color. The color of animals' fur is equally incompetent to influence radiation. Some of the first results of the invention of Langley's bolometer were to show that the maximum heat of the solar spectrum is in the orange, not in the infrared, as Herschel had supposed. It proved, moreover, that the white light from the sun is not the sum total of the solar radiations, that the sun's true color is blue, and only the orange veil of the terrestrial atmosphere works through its selective absorption on sunlight letting through the red rays and absorbing the blue to produce the effect of white. Strictly speaking, we should say with Professor Langley that the atmosphere absorbs all the colors, but selectively taking out more orange than red, more green than orange, more blue than green. As there are really an infinite number of shades of colors in the spectrum, says Langley, 
it is merely for brevity that we now unite the more refrangible colors under the general word blue and the others under the corresponding terms orange and red newton showed that white light is compounded of blue red and other colors by turning a colored wheel rapidly all blend into a grayish white arrange them so that there is too much blue and the combined result is a very bluish white that of the original sun ray alter the proportion of colors so as to virtually take out the excess of blue and the result is colorless or white light white then is not necessarily made by combining the seven colors or any number of them unless they are there in just proportion which is in effect what newton himself says and white then may be made out of such a bluish light as we have described not by putting anything to it but by taking away the excess which is there already langley and t w very showed by studying the radiations of the firefly that it is possible to produce light without heat other than that in the light itself that this is actually effected now by nature's processes that nature produces this cheapest light at about one four hundredth part of the cost of the energy which is expended in the candle flame and at but an insignificant fraction of the cost of the electric light langley showed also that the amount of energy necessary to produce the sense of color varies enormously with the color the sensation of red for example requires that the energy of the waves which enter the eye shall be one hundred thousand times as great as the energy necessary to produce the impression of green far down below the visible red of the solar spectrum the delicate filament of langley's bolometer groped its way until a point was reached at which the solar radiations seemed to be suddenly cut off from terrestrial sources however he obtained still further wavelengths which exceeded in length 0 0.03 of a millimeter or more than 0 0.001 of an inch rubens and nichols using a modified form of crook's radiometer found still longer wavelengths equal to about one one hundredth the length of the shortest hertzian waves thus radiations of almost every length from the great electric oscillations of hertz several miles long down to the ultraviolet rays less than point zero 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 nine of an inch have been definitely measured enormous strides have been made in the measurement of all kinds of radiations thanks to the invention of the hertz receiver the electric eye as sir w thompson calls it a simple instrument nothing but a bit of wire or a pair of bits of wire adjusted so that when immersed in strong electric radiations they give minute sparks across a microscopic air gap thus sir oliver lodge it was the theory of the great mathematician james clerk maxwell that light and electricity are fundamentally one upon which hertz conducted his studies leading to the production of those wonderful waves which today through the improvements of marconi convey messages a thousand miles away through empty air in a lecture delivered a few years before the close of the nineteenth century lodge said of such oscillations light is an electromagnetic disturbance of the ether optics is a branch of electricity outstanding problems in optics are being rapidly solved now that we have the means of definitely exciting light with a full perception of what we are doing 
and of the precise mode of its vibration. It remains to find out how to shorten down the waves, to hurry up the vibration until the light becomes visible. Nothing is wanted but quicker modes of vibrations. Smaller oscillators must be used, very much smaller, oscillators not much bigger than molecules. In all probability, one may almost say certainly, ordinary light is the result of electric oscillation in the molecules of hot bodies, or sometimes of bodies not hot, as in the phenomenon of phosphorescence. Anyone looking at a common glowworm must be struck with the fact that not by ordinary combustion, nor yet on the steam engine and dynamo principle is that easy light produced. So soon as we clearly recognize, he concludes, that light is an electric vibration, so soon shall we begin to beat about for some mode of exciting and maintaining an electrical vibration of any required degree of rapidity. When this has been accomplished, the problem of lighting will have been solved. End of section 13.